be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 12. So Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. The Lamb Conquers Babylon, part 3, and yes, tonight uh, I will finish it up. We're going to interpret the ten horns and the many waters tonight. Um, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Father God, we just come before you, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us wisdom to understand uh, what you're saying to us, and that you would give us ears to hear uh, what you have to say to us, the church. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so you might have got a mailing like this in the mail. It's called On the Edge of Time. Um, this is a Seventh-day Adventist mailing. Um, and it needs, if you do read it, I'm not saying don't read it. Of course, if I tell you not to read it, then some of you will go read it. But, uh, um, but it, it, it needs to be read with discernment. Um, Seventh-day Adventists have some very interesting ideas about uh, end times uh, prophecy. Um, it started, Seventh-day Adventists uh, sprung up in the upstate New York in the 1840s during the religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening. At that time, a Baptist preacher named William Miller predicted and preached that based on his reading of Daniel 8.14, Christ would return sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 24th, 1844. Now, March, those dates have gone by and God, Christ has not returned, and then they put it, him returning to some place in heaven, which makes no biblical sense. Um, but that writing there and that pamphlet is based on all that kind of predictions. In the, uh, so not, not the best thing to read unless you're just curious and you need to use discernment, though, when you read it. Just thought I'd put that out there um, since we are in the midst of Revelation. So let's review what we've learned about the vision of the great prostitute in Revelation 17. First, we have the vision of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters and is also seated on the red beast who has seven heads and ten what? Horns. Yeah, all right. Quite that composite creature here. In part one, we discuss four possible identities for the great prostitute, right? So the first is she a cryptic reference to Rome used by early church to keep certain truths from persecutors. She is the city of Jerusalem, is the second one, an apostate set against God. The third one is she's a metaphor for the entire world system set against God. This includes all major cities throughout all time. And fourth, she is a revived Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates River, once again leading the world in an apostate religion. So those are your four interpretive choices. Um, you're going to have to get way outside the box if you're coming up with a different one than that, and then I'm not even sure that would be biblical. Um, but those are your four biblical choices. In part two, we dug into the interpretation of the seven heads of the beast. Uh, we learned that the seven heads of the beast symbolize seven mountains, and that the mountains symbolize seven kings or kingdoms. Remember that? Um, and, and so with it being kings and kingdoms, um, from these observations, there are two veins of interpretation um, of the kings. First is the vein of kings, specifically uh, at being uh, seven Roman emperors. And we talked about 
uh, what emperors that could be, and you saw the graph. The second vein of interpretation is the vein of kingdoms, which are opposed to God's people, and those kingdoms would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. These kingdoms give away to the sixth, which is the Rome of John's day. The seventh follows, which is the last day of persecution by the world empire. And the eighth is the final expression, which is actually one of the seven. And that Sunday we got probably feeling a little concluded and cried out to God for wisdom to understand as the angel instructs us to do. Um, so those are the two interpretation veins there. But now that we've done some review, and I know I did that really quickly, but hopefully those two Sundays that I covered that, um, it's fresh enough in your mind. And let's take a look at the second half of the interpretation in Revelation. And it's, uh, we're going to start in Revelation 17, verse 12, and we're going to go through 18, but we're looking at 12 and 13 to begin with. Verse 12 says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. Okay? Not the same ten kings as the seven, head, the seven heads, different kings, right? But they're ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Verse 13. They are of one mind, and they hand their power and authority over to the beast. Okay? So we're going to make some observations. That the first one is that the background for the ten horns beast is Daniel chapter 7. I don't have time to read that uh, tonight, probably. So I encourage you to read Daniel 7. Uh, in your own time, in light of Revelation chapter 13 and 17. So what do we know from the text? First, we know the ten horns symbolize ten what? Kings. Second, we know that they have not received what? Power. Yeah, they don't, they have not, so if they have not received power, then that's something that is what? Future, it's going to happen. Third, we, we, they will have power for one hour, so not a long time. Now, is it a literal hour? Uh, there will be debate about that, or is it just trying to depict a short time? Fourth, they share power with the beast, right? They, they, they come together, and they give the power to the beast, and the beast, as we know from Revelation 13 and, and, and earlier, the beast uh, is where the Antichrist is. Uh, originates, and so they're giving power to the Antichrist, uh, being of one mind and willingly giving it to him. It's not like he's manipulating out of it. They want to give it to him, okay? And one mind to persecute. So who are these ten kings? And we're going to talk about that, and there's a lot of speculation. So when I was growing up, the identity of these ten kings was was being identified as nations. These kings are representing nations, and it was the European Union that, that was coming together. And, and they thought for sure that, you know, God, the Christ was coming back. Obviously, they didn't give a date, but this was a precursor because they were coming together, and there was this beginning to formulate a one-world government. Well, it turns out that it wasn't the European Union, but there was still stuff going on every day. Um, if you're watching those kinds of news cycles, that, that's trying to make a global government, right? So there are three modes of interpretation to identify. The first is literal. So there's a literal ten kings, and that's kind of what I was just talking about, a literal future ten kings. 
The second is symbolic, meaning it's not literally ten kings. Um, it's just talking about power and kingdoms of the earth. And the third is both literal and symbolic. Quick, clicking. So there are two literal options. The first option is the view of a preterist. The first ten literal rulers are the ten Roman provinces of Parthia, of Asia, of Palestine. Um, so so that it's these literal provinces of that time, and they came together and gave power to, uh, to, the, Ro to the Roman emperor, um, and that's a predator, preterist position. The second is a confederacy of nations that ally themselves with a renewed Rome. So it, it is a literal ten kingdoms. They come together, um, and Rome is the beast, so they come together and, and support Rome, but it's a renewed Rome because they have not yet, what, received power. So it's a future thing that's coming up. That would be the one that, uh, that's the futurist position. That's what I grew up with. That's why they, people were thinking, well, maybe, they will say, Maybe it's the European Union, because at the beginning, the European Union was going to be how many nations? Ten nations. And then it ends up being way more than, than ten nations. All right, go, buddy. The symbolic number ten, the, the symbolic option is the number ten represents the great power of these future kings as the lamb's seven horns represent his power. So 10 is a number of power, representing power. If these kings are taken symbolically, then they span the ages of kingdoms who are opposed to the kingdom of God. And this would be the idealist position. So it's not necessarily totally about 10 specific kingdoms. It's talking about all kingdoms that oppose God. But then also it's talking about uh, specific kingdoms potentially at the end of time. But they, we don't know who those kingdoms are. And I would totally agree with that. We don't know. That's why guys are making guesses about the European Union. The third interpretation is a combination of the literal and the symbolic. These ten kings make up a future confederacy. So it's in the future. It's not in the past. It's a future confederacy which is opposed to Jesus and is conquered at his second coming. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus, what? He conquers. He is victorious, and they also symbolize the power of the world system, which is opposed to God. So it's a both and, right? Bill writes, the horns are, are earthly agents through whom the spiritual forces of Satan and the beast walk, both throughout the ages and at the end of the age. So that's, he's an idealist. He's seeing this as a principle of Satan walking against God and his kingdom throughout all time, and then also it culminating and coming to fruition at the end of the age, but he doesn't even think it would necessarily needs to be ten kingdoms, but, they, but it is kingdoms, walking against God at the end of the age. The second observation of the text is that they have not received power. They have not received power, uh, royal power, uh, kingly power. This is an observation that fits well with the futurist idea of a confederacy against the Lamb at his second coming, right? Because 
Christ has not returned yet, right? And he said, because he's not returned yet, then these kings have not received power. The idealist's idea of ten representing the power of the kingdoms of God in the past, the present, and the future will struggle with this since they have not yet received power. See, that, that's a little wrinkle because he's saying it's power of all the nations for all time, but in the text it says they don't have power yet. So that's kind of like a little hard press on the symbolic uh, meaning there. From where does the power and authority come? It ultimately comes from God. God is the one that gives power. He's the one that sets up kings and, and takes down kings, right? And they choose to abuse They choose to abuse God's power and use it against his kingdom. And yet, the lamb conquers. You know, each of us are given power. Each of us have been given a free will in our lives, and we have the power to choose to do with it as we see fit. And I challenge you, how are you using your will? God has given you your will freely. He's given you the freedom of choice. How are you using that choice? Will you choose the lamb? Will you choose to conquer through the lamb? Or will you choose to do your own thing? The third observation of the text is they will only have power for one hour. One hour, that's it. A limited period of time. It's like the eighth who will be in power for only a little while. This is so cool because God limits their reign according to his purposes, for the lamb conquers. God limits their reign. He says, this is how long you've got. This is the time you have on the stage. I'm not giving you any other time, right? And God limits it. And I think we can take that into our own lives and say, wait a minute. This season that I'm in is limited by God. It's not forever, and that God will take care of me, what? Through it. Because in Christ Jesus, I am more than conquerors because of what he did on the cross and what he validated in his resurrection. The fourth observation of the text is then is them <coughs> sharing their power with the beast. They willingly share their power, being of one mind. They are one mind, they are united in opposition to the Lamb, and these ten kings are in one mind to destroy the great prostitute. They want to destroy the Lamb and his kingdom and his people, but praise God, they will not win, right? Let's look at Revelation 7.14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will what? Conquer them. For he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and those. <coughs> oh, I couldn't do that. <coughs> I know, I was getting excited, and then my cough was like calling me back. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So, what does the Lamb do? He conquers them. He conquers them. Who is the Lamb? He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, right? 
There's nobody under him. There's nothing that can lick him. There's nothing that got him stumped because he has conquered. And you know what? It's good news. Those who follow him, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, right? Those who follow him, the cross before me. Uh, oh, now I forgot that song. I'm going to have to remind myself of that anyways. If you know that song, you can look it up. I have decided to follow Jesus. Good hymn. We are called, called by God. God called you. He said, come to me, right? Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's called you. Not only has he called you, but he has chosen you. Before the foundation of the earth, he chose you to be sanctified and saved by the blood of Jesus. So you're called, you're chosen, and you are faithful. He has given you faith to walk in. You are called, chosen, and faithful. These are who you are. Don't believe the lies that say that you are something else. This is who you are. Stand in the identity in which he has given freely to you. This is good news. The lamb conquers, and we conquer through the lamb. That is such good news. It is what gives us hope to go on the next day in the journey that you're in, in the struggle that you're walking through. That he has conquered and that he is using this for your eternal good and for his glory. Now, do you have to work with your expectations? Do you have to work with with what you expect out of life and from him? Yeah. And is it really hard if you expect for there to be no ups and downs and for everything to be easy? Yeah, it's really hard because you're going to just be really mad. And is it even hard when you expect to be up and downs? Yes. But he has conquered and he is with you. He says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He's walking with you in the journey, walking it for your eternal good and his glory. Gabe and I were talking the other day and we were talking about eternity. And one of the things that we were thinking about was numbering our days. I had like some. Like 9,000, no, yeah, 9,000 and some odd days left if I only lived till 70. Some of you are past that, so you're like in bonus round. But 9,800 and I think it was 55, that's not very long. It's not a very big number. That's my time allotted for me, for you well, that a number for you on earth. It's not forever. How many days am I in eternity with my Savior in, my new, in the new heaven and the new earth? It's not sitting on a cloud. It's embodied, a new body that doesn't get cancer, that doesn't get viruses, right? And how long is that? It's forever and ever. And that is the victory that the Lamb has brought to your life today. And not only that, but he can make the stuff that's going sideways today work for that eternity. 
Turn to Revelation 7, 15. And the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. People, multitudes, nations, and languages. <coughs> oh. <coughs> Getting excited again. I just need to talk in monotone. You guys all be taking a nap by the time I was done, but. The Old Testament background for, for Revelation uh, 17, 15 is Isaiah 17, 12 to 13. Let's read that. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. They roar, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roaring of the mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but he, God, will rebuke them. They will flee away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. The angel in verse 15 gives the interpretation for what the many waters symbolize. The many waters symbolize the people of the earth who joined the Aholet. And remember, the Aholet symbolizes Babylon. And we could talk about those four kinds of uh, types that it could be Babylon could be representing. But it's uh, they join Hor. The people of the earth joined the harlot uh, in adultery and idolatry. Adultery is unfaithfulness to your spouse. And God created us, the humanity, the earth, for what? Relationship, didn't he? And what did we do as, an, as a people, as, as a, uh, uh, humanity as a whole? Nah, 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 right? We thumbed our nose at him and said, no, thank you, as a Whole. Now, those whom he has called and or chosen and, and called to be and are faithful, those have not committed idolatry, uh, adultery or idolatry with him. So it is this picture. They're the same thing. They're just saying it in two different ways. When we feel a broken relationship, adultery is one of the most ways we can see it and feel it. Whether you're a spouse that's been uh, ha had the, the repercussions of, of infidelity in your marriage and you felt that, or whether you're a child that was in a marriage that had that happen, you felt the brokenness and the tearing. And that is what God is saying is happening when those, his creation rejects him. Patterson writes, Babylonianism... <laughs> This symbol of Babylon seems to exist anywhere in the world where religious faith is economical, primarily experiential, imperialistic, hedonistic. Those are some big words. I didn't realize I had put some big words up there. And generally compromised. So economical is organized, uh, like a church, so just so you know, economical. Uh, experiential, that's like how you feel about it, okay? Imperialistic, that's like uh, authoritative, like think empire, right? So uh, dictator type. Hedonistic, uh, that's a big word, but that means living from your pleasures and 
uh, and what you want, um, and then generally compromise. The focus of the Babylonianism is always on man's achievement as opposed to God's grace, okay? And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beasts will hate the prostitute, verse 16. Oh, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. So now we have the ten horns and the beast turning against this harlot, this, the woman Babylon. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Wow. So verse 16 reminds me of the words of Jesus in Mark 3.26, which says, And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, what? He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Satan and his schemes are what? They are coming to an end. Praise the Lord. That is coming to an end. Verse 17 reminds us that God is in control. Say, God is in control. God is in control. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but he is in control, and he is victorious. And we need to remember that in our own trials, that God is in control. He hasn't lost sight of what he's doing in our life, and he will fulfill his purposes. And I know sometimes we feel like all I do is hamper God's purpose in my life. And, and you know, and sometimes we, we do discourage his purposes, but I want you to know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You need to trust him in that. And as you lean into him relationally, you know, walk with him. Don't leave him at the door. Uh, don't leave him here as you walk out. Take him with you. You know, he, he actually is with you, but acknowledge him being with you. Verse 18, 17, 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Who is the great city? According to Revelation 16, 18, it's Babylon. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon, the great, to make or drain the cup of the, the wine of the fury of his wrath. So the identity of the woman is Babylon, whether it's a revived Babylon, a cryptic reference to Rome, a symbolic Jerusalem, or a symbolic for chaos and evil, or some combination of this, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is Jesus, what? Jesus wins. Babylon, in whatever meaning, will be done away with. In this, we have hope. The hope that the wicked will not always prosper. God is reworking all things for sacred space. The whole earth and heaven will be his space. He will be with man and men will be with him. A hope that we will reign with the Trinity in a new heaven and a new earth. And so let us hold fast to the present and future hope that the Lamb has conquered. 
and we are victorious in him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have conquered from the nitty-gritty of our lives to the big pictures of the end of the world and the judgment of evil and the putting down of the Antichrist. We thank you that you are victorious and you are coming again. We pray that you will help us to use that lens of your victory as we walk through life's struggles and trials. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.